This is the conclusion of our two-part conversation with Edward Ongweso Jr. of Vice Magazine on Proposition 22, the gig economy, and the future of capitalism. In the conclusion of our conversation, we discuss how entities like Uber, Lyft, Postmates, DoorDash, and other gig economy fixtures are in fact precursors for a neo-feudalism or post-capitalism to come. We discuss what this world might look like, as well as if figures like Peter Thiel and others who wish for a return to a world where capitalists are literally the same as kings are in fact bankrolling the gig economy as a vehicle or tip of the spear to bring about this neo-feudalist nightmare future. For more conversations like this, you can go to our back catalog on the Arts of Travel podcast. In part one of our conversation, Edward unpacks the mechanisms of Proposition 22 and why figures like Obama administration officials have been instrumental in spreading the gig economy. And you can go to our website at asiaarttours.com. We host great print interviews on a variety of subjects around Asia and the world. All right, here's our conversation with Edward Onweso Jr. of Vice Magazine on Proposition 22. This is the conclusion of a two-part conversation. My name is uh, Edward Anguasso Jr. I'm a staff writer at uh, Motherboard, uh, which is Vice's technology section. I focus mainly on labor, uh, the gig economy, uh, digital rights, and um, also co-host of uh, This Machine Kills, which is a podcast about political economy of tech um, and technology in cities, technology and uh, in property law, technology in domestic politics. I don't know. Uh, I think that's pretty much it. I'm working on some things about the Bay Area, the history of the Bay Area, and um, some of the roots, some of the pre-capitalist roots of inequality there that really supercharged um, Silicon Valley's uh, uh, exploitation of uh, the people there. Um, but other than that, that's pretty much it. Knowing the long-term strategic vision um, of someone like a Peter Thiel, who has used individuals as unlikely as a Hulk Hogan to advance his agenda. When we look at something like an Uber or Lyft or a DoorDash, and we connect them to their backers, who uh, Thiel and uh, I, you can fill in the names of others, are neo-feudalists. They want to return to, to feudalism with themselves as, as sort of kings. Do you see them as perhaps using these companies as a vehicle um, to institute these changes in capitalism? I know you write about regulatory entrepreneurship. Could you explain what that is and then connect that to this more macabre idea I'm floating that 
Uber is allowed to be unprofitable because it's not, in fact, a company. It's instead a spear, a weapon that people like Teal can use to build out a neo-feudal uh, United States. You know, my uh, my thesis, my senior thesis in college was on Uber and a huge chunk of it, you know, was an argument that Uber should be understood as uh, as an accelerationist uh, vector for capital accumulation and that it doesn't really matter if Uber to the investors, to, to, to the savvy investors, I guess, right, to the people who forked over the most capital and the people who have forced the company to do something like its IPO um, to realize a return on capital. It doesn't matter to them whether or not the company is profitable. It matters if the company's value um, can be realized. And there are multiple ways for the value to be realized. You can realize it in the market with a literal return on your investment. And you can do that by good news, favorable financials, um, regulatory and legal successes, all that's nice. But the real value is in permanently changing regulations uh, so that it's what was illegal for you is now legal and um, uh, uh, something that you can turn into a new line of business activity. It was illegal at one point for Uber to operate in most of the cities in the United States, right? Locking it out of a, a potential market, locking it out of potential revenue. Um, by changing the law, it now has access to new markets, riders, right? Uh, and by continuing to change the law, it can expand its margins. It can reduce the amount of money it has to pay workers. It can reduce the amount of money uh, it has to cover for their health insurance. It could reduce the amount of money it has to contribute um, to any sort of uh, safety net if uh, that it might otherwise have to if they were employees. Um, and you know, all of that is fine and dandy for Uber and it increases its value, but the real value is that it's not simply doing this for Uber, it's doing this for other companies in an industry and a set of investments that these people are also involved in, right? And that Uber, like you said, ends up being the tip of the spear for new attempts to realize outsized returns in an age of you know falling profit, in an age of near zero interest rates, and you're not getting returns on your bonds. If you want like a if you want a return on investment, there are all sorts of bullshit red tape you have to deal with. Things like a minimum wage and health insurance and, and, and labor laws and safety uh, regulations um, and you know limits on pollution, all this bullshit. But if you can fund as a small investment uh, specific enterprises that will eviscerate the rules and the regulations in one field or another, that might reduce the amount of money uh, or it, it might reduce a barrier to profit and it might reduce a barrier to value, you know, to realized value for, a, for an investment. And that just helps everybody else out, right? In an age of historically low return on capital, that is a good way to, re, to accumulate more. I think it is then important to, uh, I, you know, I've written about the, uh, them being regulatory entrepreneurs because of that, right? And also one of the reasons why I focus on the unprofitability is, Hopefully that people, you know, notice that there's no market logic for this. And, and if that's the case, then why the hell uh, 
do so many drivers have to suffer? Why do people have to starve? Why do people have to sleep in their cars? Uh, because they're not doing it for the market. They're not doing it for your benefit. They're not doing it for my benefit. They're doing it so that a small cadre of investors are able to realize returns elsewhere. Not even in that company. If they do it in that company, that would be nice. But in reality, it's going to help them somewhere else that they're invested in because it'll advance the gig economy. And that is uh, immoral. It's unconscionable. It's disgusting. Um, and I hope I try to at least infuse stuff in the writing with like the sense that um, it is very clear what's going on here, right? And they're not redoing it. They're never going to make a profit. Even the regulatory entrepreneurship will not yield them a profit. This Prop 22 saved them from employee classification, but it introduces new costs. Now they have to pay a little bit of a stipend for um, for health insurance. Now they have to uh, for for health con they have to contribute a to a stipend so that a driver can get access to the medicare or, i mean to the aca plan in california right um they have to contribute to uh, accident coverage right so now they have now their costs have increased a little bit uh pushing them a little bit further away from profitability and they're gonna have to make up for that by increasing their prices which will push a little bit of their riders out again pushing them further from profitability but again that's not really the point right for them the point is regulatory entrepreneurship and realizing returns elsewhere for investors, which is immoral. Again, you know, it's like this system is not, why should this system be allowed to exist? It just feels like we're living in a dream world of capitalism where you screaming, there's no, you know, um, there's, these are unprofitable, these are unprofitable, but their stocks keep going up. Um, where like a Rick and Morty tweet from Elon Musk can affect, you know, the hundreds of millions of dollars in profit. Are we sort of nearing like um, an end game here uh, in the form of these tips of spears? Um, are, are, is, is the advancing army of people like Teal and his usage of things like Uber, are we nearing a point of sort of no return and beyond uh, sort of how capital should work. It, do you see people like Teal and other majority investors in the gig economy as using it not just as a transformation of capital, but as this grander political project of neo-feudalism or trying to truly transform uh, our political reality? Yeah, you know, I think some of the people... I'm the most fascinated by, I think it would be accurate to call them like post-capitalists in that, you know, they are people who... You know, they're capitalists in terms of what the system is today. They have billions of dollars that they deploy like a weapon to achieve returns one way or another um, to privately own, you know, shit, basically, um, and uh, realize a return on it and to drive production, you know, blah, 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 all that. But um, they're also interested in achieving a novel political system, one where the returns that they've had are more easily consolidated. Um, and two, where, you know, they are sitting at the center in one way or another of interactions, transactions, um, commodities, uh, services that resembles a monopoly, but is unimpeachable um, and indistinguishable from like the daily infrastructure, uh, from the infrastructure of daily life. And I think, you know, Hito Sterl talks about um 
about uh, Peter Thiel, you know, the best way it's best to understand him is like a vampire fascist, you know, or, you know, proto-fascist or this sort of figure who his political project is to undermine, as he said himself, core parts of liberalism um, and to also undermine core parts of um, what people may consider part of capitalism, but which he will say are actually anti-capitalist and that they don't allow for capital to fully dominate everyone's lives and to be the ultimate arbiter of our moral values, of our interactions, our social dynamics, our political systems, our economics, right? Uh, That uh, competition is anti-capitalist as an example, right? That monopolies are desirable and should be institutionalized in a way that they're not currently and unimpeachable in a way they're not currently. And like you said, that's just just, uh, fiefdom. That's just neo-feudalism, right? I think that's the post-capitalism we are really, really at the edge of. and I think there are numerous uh, points of no return, not simply just like if we enter a post-capitalist era, um, could we permanently be disempowered in a way that would present, prevent any resistance in, in informal politics? But also if they achieve victory, they'll be able to, you know, what if they what if even if we get rid of them, they've so thoroughly indoctrinated us and polluted the you know our imaginations and the way that we interact with each other um, and the planet that one, we can't envision an alternative and two, even if we could, we, we wouldn't have the capacity to uh, to build it if it was um, too damaged, too too uh, too choked with smog, uh, too hot from a cli- uh, from, you know, from solar radiation being captured, uh, you know, uh, too, too, too devastated, you know, uh, what if we can't build the world that we could envision? And, you know, I think these are huge, huge, huge dangers and possibilities that in one way or another aren't considered, but are, I mean, vaguely considered in the sense of like, you know, socialism or is, or barbarism, or like we have X amount of years until climate change um, kills or set in stage a set of processes which would kill us but we should also be talking about the ways in which like capitalism will not always be capitalism and could turn into post-capitalism which for the benefit of capitalists and lock in the worst um, and most exploitative elements of capitalism as a feature of human political activity for the future in the way that it seems hierarchies, it seems private property, it seems power relations are locked in, you know? Um, and I think that would be a huge fucking disaster that I'm not, I'm sure at some point in the future might be able to be overcome, but I would not, I'm not, I can't see immediately how if uh, the worst elements of capitalism were made permanent and as natural as the idea that you should be dominated by another person seems to be, or the idea that you should be able to rent yourself, um, or the idea that you uh, should have to pay for things that you need to survive when you when you're just born, you know, um, things that are ridiculous, but um, naturalized, you know. If all of this continues and keeps going, I feel like that's another point of return. So I'm worried. I think. I think they have every advantage they need to achieve it. So the question is like, what options are going to be considered to prevent it? And I feel like not everything is on the table because we are not 
being honest with ourselves about like how dire it is. I mean, in a way we are, right? When we talk about the, like again, when we talk about ecological catastrophe or nuclear proliferation, or in a way we are being honest about what the material element, but we're also like, this will kill our souls, you know, I think very clearly like, and make it not desirable to be alive or to make what is being alive reconfigure it in a way that is going to be alien to us. Um, how do you stop that when people may or may not may not really be aware that that's in the cards, you know? Chakwe Lumumba, as you recently reported, and, and maybe you'll do a follow-up on this because it's one of the most bizarre stories I've ever read. And um, uh, I, I'd love you to be given more space advice to discuss this. But he essentially, from my understanding of your reporting, invited the Jackson Police Department to collaborate with Amazon's Ring program to... Uh, access their private security cameras of Ring in order to further detect criminal activities. Now, it sounds like a punchline of like a Breitbart article. Um, this extremely progressive black mayor who has been very vocal about building out dual power structures um, invites one of the most rapacious capitalist firms to collaborate with one of the most troubled racist police forces in America. Sorry, Mississippi. Um, I'm still processing this, so I don't want to comment too much, but what was shocking for you about this story? And what does it sort of say to you when you're talking? Because I know a lot of your colleagues are probably more on the social Democrat end of the spectrum if Chakwe Lumumba is helping the Jackson Police Department and Amazon better strengthen their mutual ability to police uh, poverty, black lives, and um, and private property, what does that say to you maybe about um, how much further we have to go before we hit bottom and maybe criticisms of how traditionally social Democrats have interacted with these questions of big tech yeah you know i think one of the really 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 like hugely neglected parts of this story that story is the fact that like just three years ago this was someone who was saying he was going to make jackson um the most radical city in the country in the planet actually i think it was the planet um about building socialism in the city about his trips to Barcelona and how they had, you know, figured out ways to uh, take more control of municipal development away from corporations. I mean, this is someone who uh, was talking a, a bit, a, a big fucking game, right? Um, and is now partnering with your know, public enemy number one. And as you said, one of the most racist uh, police departments in the country. I think, uh, one of the problems in trying to ascertain this is that there's not been good reporting of his comments, right? Um, I'm still trying to hunt down his words at city council meetings, or meetings in general and other interviews where he talks about his rationale behind this, right? Um, and it seems to be he really buys into the, you know, um, 
the ideas behind predictive policing and this sort of smart, you know, this the scientific, uh, the scientific racism of uh, smart policing, where it's like if we have enough, if we have enough data, uh, we can find all the criminals, and it's a coincidence that they're all black. Um, and in you know, a huge concern there because one, uh, you know, he has an, a support network. Uh, that I would have assumed would have steered him away from this. Um, he has a community, an outspoken community and constituency that overwhelmingly voted him in um, and has been, as far as I could tell, one of the, uh, has been enthusiastic about this, uh, this the radicalism that he's been promising. And yet uh, we're not seeing it here. This is a huge reactionary turn. Um, I'm worried that, I'm also worried about what this spells about cities as a site of resistance, you know? Um, cities are both like some of the most powerless places to radically disrupt or undermine key parts of capitalism and some of the most promising, you know, powerless because a city cannot challenge trade deals, cannot challenge larger international monetary and financial arrangements, but powerful in that and, and also powerless in that uh, sometimes the cities don't even own the stuff in the city because um, a lot of cities finance operations through bonds and if like and bondholders have meticulously built out um, legal precedent for getting paid back, you know, on time or on demand um, in ways that uh, prioritize their money over needs of the residents of the city. Um, so you know, they're powerless in those regards, but they're also powerful in the sense that, you know, a city freed of those burdens is able to make huge demands of sit of uh, corporations that operate in there. But you have to get to the point where you are freed of those demands um, uh, of, of the constraints of debt financing, for example. Um, I think this is something Jackie Wang, for example, has talked a lot about in cultural capitalism, about how like the turn uh, the, the 2008 financial crisis also devastated cities and forced them to be even more reliant on police departments to extract revenues to pay back uh, debts that uh, were being called in or that were um, and that if had gone bad would have endangered a city cash uh, cash trap cities across the country um, and their ability to uh, get money to fund you know municipal services and public services. So I think you know, we, you know, all of this is within the neoliberal desert and austerity that has stripped away funding alternatives for everything. But that still doesn't explain or justify why uh, Lumumba's um, entertaining Amazon's particularly pernicious program where Amazon already allows police departments, if they partner with Ring, uh, to get access to everybody else's Ring surveillance cameras by simply asking nicely and training them on how to, you know, strongly recommend or suggest um, that they give it over. And um, also, this is in a state where it's illegal to film stuff that's not on your property anyway, but that doesn't matter. Um, all of this is like a confluence where I, Jackson also needs to be remembered has its own surveillance hub, right? And already has a pretty comprehensive surveillance system um, under Lumumba, and yet it's being expanded even more further. I think that partly, I think part of that might suggest that um, there's a bankruptcy and imagination that's going on there where uh, I can't even imagine a way to reduce crime uh, 
that doesn't involve more surveillance. Uh, maybe that's a bankruptcy of uh, the institutions in which there's not even the capacity politically or, or economically to, to pursue the well-established alternatives to cutting down crime, uh, like housing, you know, or social services, uh, prevention instead of uh, prediction. Um, or maybe that's just uh, evidence that it was rhetoric all along. Um, but although I am hesitant to say that just because of how enthusiastic some of the support was from groups like the Jackson Cooperative, right? Or ja um, I don't know. I mean, it is a pretty depressing development. I'm hoping, I'm hoping to dive more into it at some point and really, uh, from, uh, really dive into what happened, hopefully talk to Cooperation Jackson about um, what happened there. But I don't know, what's your read on it? Like what, like, or what are your fears watching that you know because i also share that fear that that signals we're at the end of the line right that the project is so persuasive or so forceful that it really doesn't even matter um and not only does it not matter but that someone who like him who could have mobilized support and resistance to this if it was out of his hands didn't um and just rolled over and did it for someone like lumumba who as you've alluded to possibly um, it's great that you have very uh, fiery rhetoric about building the most radical city uh, in a, in uh, on the planet, but then that needs to be backed up by concrete action, specifically as you're sort of trying to dig yourself out of the quicksand of running a government within a capitalist world. So in general, you know, I'm a lonely sort of, I'm a lonely monk, in that I, I think our subject positions are extremely important to um, destroying these systems. And I think far too few people do the very dangerous and um, potentially uh, self-destructive um, acts of righteousness needed to destroy these systems. We're all just a little too comfortable writing books, running campaigns, and talking a good game. So that's in general how I feel about this moment. And, and that's, I guess, without knowing more about Lumumba personally, uh, would be my um, critique of, of this truly farcical article that you've, uh, you've written. It really is like it's a, like it is a huge farce if like if the if it ends up being that like that's um, he's fine with that, you know, um, I hope it's not. Um, and I, and I hope to, like you said, I hope to flesh out that out more to see what's actually going on, but I don't know. My instinct is that from what I've seen with cities, um, a mix of like being surrounded by neoliberals in the city governance and also like maybe, um, hands tied, um, pushed them there. But again, but, but like you said, um, that's also connected to uh, not being on the front lines or having skin in the game and also concerned about the fact that there didn't seem to be like an attempt to mobilize base of support because like at the same time, the, you know, the mayor banned um, the police department from using facial recognition. Um, well, this just seems even stupider then. 
Yeah, <laughs> because ostensibly, if you would you if you were to do this sort of program, you would then say, oh, we're going to combine it with facial recognition technology and it's going to be better than anything we've ever used. And they're not even able to do that. So they're really just watching. They're just basically doing what PredPol does and putting little red boxes on the map that they're going to watch. And if something happens there, it's criminal. Something sketchy happens there, it's criminal immediately. And it'll be criminal because it's coded that way for the location, which is a proxy for race and for the person who's going to be a race, you know, that they'll watch more for and their behavior will be proxy for race too. I, I would imagine maybe part of the problem is how we're framing Lumumba as someone who could be progressive in a role that is inherently going to ask him to be counter-revolutionary. If, if he was a revolutionary, he would be rallying against all the systems of oppression and surveillance and control that require that are that is required by governing a city. Um, it's inherently, uh, I'd imagine, a counter-revolutionary role. So maybe the the, the sort of closing uh, uh, semicolon of our conversation would be that that a lot of what we've talked about um, is trying to look for revolution in roles where it's inherently antithetical. Uh, for it to come into existence, that a Lumumba could could be no more revolutionary than an Obama, uh, than a Peter Thiel. So I guess that would be my the only other thing I could offer on that. Was was there anything that came to mind in that little soliloquy? Uh, yeah, you know, I think that your point on, um, you know, what he is actually able to do, that is a question I would be also interested in looking into, you know, because I guess like saying, you know, cities are both the most powerless and some of the most potential like New York city um, has a literal fucking board of financiers who have to approve terms of agreement for loans and ensure that they're and, and funding for public projects. Uh, there is, there's already so many limitations on what a mayor of New York city could do legally, also politically, um, and socially, right, because of all the groups that they're probably friends with that brought them to power, but also just having a board of fucking bankers, you know, <laughs> and banks uh, puts a huge fucking limit on the, the options available. And, you know, every city doesn't have that, but a lot of cities have some analogous uh, institution or some arrangement that functions like that is essentially or some set of obligations that function like that and so our question then you know maybe part of it is also looking for cities where we can do an intervention in like maybe there maybe there needs to be like also efforts to look at cities where like they would be riper than others to like just take over i don't know fucking do sewer socialism you know or or agitate or or drop in, but our carpet bag, I don't know what it is, but um, experimentation is always key. You know, that's all, that's uh, nothing we have right now is working. We have to constantly experiment. What, what worked and what resonated with you as a leftist uh, from the activists of Prop 22? And where might you be more inclined uh, to view things through my perspective, where capital is telling us you're not going to get fucking unions, um, so we may need to try other tactics. You know, on the question of Prop 22, I think I am, I've been more, I am definitely more bitter on it than I am for other political or a lot of other political questions, largely because I am 
I agree with you that, you know, unions are in of themselves a, a compromise between labor and capital. You do not, you promise not to strike, you know, withhold labor, uh, to shut down the factories, uh, to try to kill your, your bosses, you know, and we promise not to fire on you um, and to give you some uh, amenities. Um, but that being said, the compromise is supposed to be also one where it, it's supposed to work for all, again for both labor and capital. Your capital is protected from these um, from the threat of disruption, and laborers are supposed to have some benefits advanced to them, and and supposed to have an advocate for them. And on Prop Twenty Two, I mean, uh, the unions failed completely. Uh, they were way too slow to support. The driver groups and the grassroots groups from uh, roots from uh, grassroots groups from the beginning, and when they came to the table, um, back when AB five was being negotiated, they tried to do carve outs and exceptions and negotiate with the gig companies. I think on Prop twenty two, uh, the unions failed us. Um, they eventually worked right, and they tried hard, and but it was too little, too late uh, by the end of it. Because what should have been happening, right, is mass mobilization of union workers or of uh, union political forces or of applying pressure to the a national party to do more um, than simply tweet that they are opposed to Prop 22, 20, uh, Prop 22. And if they were elected president, they would never let it pass. I mean, we needed people. We need people face to face talking to each other, going to airports, talking to drivers, going to green light hubs, talking to drivers when they're open, uh, going to places where drivers are and talking to them and having spaces for drivers to come in and talk to them. Uh, and part of that was complicated by the pandemic, right? Uh, but I still don't think that is any excuse. And it was really infuriating and frustrating to see a lack of uh, mobilization on that part. And I think that, I think, you know, I'm working on a, on a postmortem. It's probably not going to come out anytime soon, probably not this year, um, on how it is that in the fucking uh, county that the Speaker of the House of the Democratic Party represents, uh, a faction of the party that now also has a vice president, right, and the governor of the goddamn state. How is it that despite this unholy trinity, uh, labor was able to, uh, no, I'm sorry, not labor, capital was able to win on that or, or win so by such a ridiculously large margin despite mobilizing efforts. I think though, even though unions um, did not step up and do their part, the driver grassroots groups, uh, the work they did was amazing. It didn't cut it though. And so we should look at the failure and the success of it. I think it worked really well face-to-face um, -face interactions with uh, people, um, events, caravans, things like this to try to generate attention and focus on there as a chance to get people asking, why are, the, why are my Uber and Lyft drivers a part of this protest? Should I talk to my Uber and Lyft driver, right? Part of, you know, like we talked about earlier, there's a huge barrier between people just having a conversation with their driver because the driver's scared of getting rated poorly and has trained themselves to not talk in a way. And because... Uh, the customer's train has been trained to expect a certain set of things from the driver. Any sort of spectacle and 
political spectacle, political theater, or literal conversation with someone that can break that barrier down is important. Uh, and the larger, the better, and which could have been helped with, you know, support from the from national orgs. Um, I think, you know, there were huge attempts to reach as many people as possible in non-face-to-face ways because of the pandemic through Canvas, uh, through phone banking, as an example, and um, text messaging. And those have different effects. If you're an organizer, they, you know, the drop-off rates are much higher for, um, for anything that does not involve a face-to-face interaction. Um, but I think, you know, again, like as, 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 as massive as the grassroots group was, where they were able to get the county itself to oppose Prop 22, except for in the richest areas, that shouldn't be a surprise. Um, it failed because it didn't have the resources behind it that it needed to, right? They didn't need to spend 200 million, but they needed to put enough people out to reach places where the only propaganda playing was the corporate propaganda and not our propaganda. I mean, and I think it's fine to call our shit propaganda because I mean, like in a sense, we're trying to change people's hearts and minds and sway them, right? And our position I think is true and right or was true and right, which is that Prop 22 would have been a massive disaster. It's going to be a massive disaster for drivers. But there was no apparatus, there's not enough of an apparatus, not enough of support, not enough uh, resources to get it out to the places that it needed to be. Um, and I, you know, again, I lay the blame for that at the uh, Democratic Party um, and at the feet of uh, a lot of the unions. Um, to your, also to your point about, um, you know, people having an interest in advancing unions, you know, I think there's uh, part of it maybe that for many people, unions are probably the one of the last places in which they can actually feel some sort of democratic accountability in their workplace or in their lives, right? Um, especially if you have what seems to be a good union in your workplace that is able to that has negotiated a contract that has protected you from discrimination, that has protected other people from firing, you know, then the union seems like a great place and a site for, you know, it's a place where you'll feel solidarity. It's a place where you'll feel protection and like you have each other's backs and it's a place where you can do agitation of the sort that you might want that you can't get in the larger scale society because of how fucking reactionary and capitalist you know dominated it is but you might be able in the workplace because if you have enough workers on your side but at the same time like you talked about that can be a trap you know because um um they are a compromise they're compromised because the option, the real option is like, uh, do the human beings that are doing the job just stop doing the job and fuck up the company and prevent it from operating? Um, uh, do they drop out from, or they, they pull out of rea- of society, right? And just and bring things to a grinding halt and stop business as usual or not? And um, yeah, you know, I think especially with the, the gig economy, there's gonna have to be a discussion about alternative tactics right there's going to need to be resistance to prop 22 there's going to need to be uh the the unions are gonna have to mobilize this time as is the democratic party if there's any hope of stopping it from happening in new york where cuomo's already trying to negotiate with these companies um uh, massachusetts uh which is trying to sue the companies to reclassify its workers there needs to be mobilization there to prevent it from happening um but there also needs to be, you know, how can we strike? 
How can we with how can we fuck over the platform? How can we take it over? How can we do the sorts of uh, things that they do? Um, you know, it's not easy to do these things, but they do them in other countries. They've done them in France. They've done them in Nigeria. They've done them in India. They've done them in Brazil. They've done them in Mexico. Um, you know, they've done them all across the world. They've done them in the UK. Um, there needs to be more thoughts about how we can fuck the and gum up the machine and fuck things up beyond simply negotiations. You know, there's legal work and there's illegal work that needs to be done on this. I think that's uh, and I think that is like a huge thing that needs to be done. And part of the barrier to that is that you know unions are also like pretty disciplined in that like you don't do these you don't do certain things if the union doesn't have you know approve it right and i'm sure that has a bleed through effect where workers are just not going to consider certain things if they're not even like things the union will talk about but i mean we're at, we're against the fucking wall i think you know in terms of the question of what labor is going to do and what labor can extract from capital the most like there are no they we've exhausted all the niceties and the and the legal mechanisms and and this and in getting an easy battle prop 22 would have been or should have been i think an easy win for labor, right? And it ended up not becoming one because of the fragmented fragmenting of the unions and the party and because of the lack of support they got. The, from here on out, all the battles are gonna be even more difficult. The, the attempts to do antitrust are I think legally right, but antitrust law in this country is so distorted and perverted um, because it's had a 40-year ideological revolution towards corporate power, that, that may not bear out, right? So then what are you left with? I've been very discouraged by watching the U.S. left either ignore the Black Lives Matter protests or, as we were talking about with mutual friend Vicki Osterweil, uh, degrade a book that I think is one of the best breakdowns about how illegal methods are often some of the most progressive tools available uh, for protest and dissent. Vicky's book was a very important one. It's a, a very important work, uh, you know, piece of work. And two, like, uh, the release was important in watching how the reaction is because um, among the people who I think resisted her book the most viciously, um, you also uh, coincidentally see some of the most depressing and unimaginative proposals and alternatives. If we, if you are going to come down hard on looting and rioting, even after the book lays out a very convincing case about why they are effective and moral and should be embraced, then at least propose alternatives that don't do that, but can still get the goods, right? The And it's from people who could not care less if a port is closed, could not care less if a road or highway is closed, except to complain about it, and, have, and don't have the curiosity to look at what labor movements are doing to successfully stop nationwide for, uh, pension freezes or wage cuts, right? Or to get, like you said, a boss to pay them. I mean... I think China, I think, is also is an example I'm always fascinated by because in the West, right, there is a huge amount of um, discussion about the ways in which um, China is unique as a site of um, 
of uh, explo- exploitation and and surveillance and uh, extraction of or, or, or exploit exploitation of its workers, surveillance of its population, um, you know, oppression of you know minorities, right? You know, I, the, I think a lot of commentators will pay t- uh, pay attention to this and talk about it, rightfully so, right? When it happens, um, but there's also like a lack of um, connection or thinking about like similarly the ways in which things are actually happening in the country like if like why is there no interest whatsoever in some of the labor tactics right that are being done in this country and why is it that they're able to do it in a country with which has in place an apparatus that could be used to more to you know to to watch dissidents and and closely surveil them uh more uh more closely than they might in the united states if 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 the labor actions are still able to be that successful and that disruptive and that illegal i mean should that not raise the question of why here in this country where we have in law a compromise between um capital and labor is there no effort or no attention or no curiosity in developing alternative methods it's really frustrating i don't know and i don't know the answer i don't know why it is that we know you know as internationalist as leftists may be yeah, or talk about being in the United States. There's, there's the, there's a, there's a vacuum. There's a dearth of attempts to work with international struggles. Um, the gig economy is right. The, the gig economy is ripe for this. is a perfect example of this. There are few gig economies as global as Uber, right? And as a result, I think Uber is a perfect example of this. As a result, Uber has a patchwork of legal agreements, of economic arrangements of political understandings and achievements and situations and classifications and licensing in different countries and in different blo- uh, blocks of trade, uh, trading partners, right? In the EU versus individual EU member states versus North Africa versus the Middle East, um, you know, versus Latin America. These are pressure points that are unique in ways that few other companies have been. I, I mean, beyond like, you know, physical productive uh, capacity and just like destroying a factory, right? It is much easier to fuck up Uber's app in a city than it is to, in theory, destroy a factory, right? Or to maybe sabotage it. And yet, um, even the discussion of this stuff is not really entertained well, you know? Like, and as an example, I am re- like, you know, in some closed spaces that emerge. Uh, where people get the chance to talk about this stuff. I am adamant on the idea that drivers and organizers need to figure out ways um, where the goal should be the com- the city needs to just, a city or a state or a country needs to steal outright the, um, the information, right? And that in the meantime, sabotage, disruption, gumming up the works uh, need to be methods that are considered at the same time as um, political legis- uh, political agitation, political reforms, uh, legal cases, right? But all the discussion ends up being the legal work. And maybe part of that is because what came, what emerged when, you know, Vicky's book um, came out is this disgust for illegal work, either because, oh, it might undermine our position 
or whatever, not that we have one really, or it might undermine our tactics or that it might undermine our cause or that it might uh, sour partners in a coalition, whatever. All of this, I think though, is nonsense, right? We're not in, like we're not going to win if we convince a bunch of politicians to sign on to us. We're going to win if we convince the workers to just do it, them, you know, to take the shit, right? We're going to win if the workers make it unbearable and, and, and inconceivable to continue things as usual, right? Because what the politicians will do is just, um, you know, work at the edges, um, small reforms that'll get overcome in two years. Uh, medium reforms that'll get overcome when they have a sufficiently powerful enough patsy or plant or uh, ideologue um, who shares their beliefs. Um, no large reforms because it's not in anyone's imagination. It's just, I think, you know, the, the refusal to look internationally and the refusal to consider illegal work is, is and, the, and the failure of the national, you know, compromise institutions and establishments to back is just like should be telling us that we need to do these things ourselves we're not we can't we can't rely on like the the groups and the institutions that are supposed to work for us because they didn't they failed they failed spectacularly in california and what i really do believe should have just been a win a strong win for these uh for the labor side in just surviving beyond us. Well, Edward, it was it was a real pleasure talking to you. I'm glad the conversation was able to go in all these really interesting directions. Is there anything that you would want to bring uh, people's attention to, either for your own work or in terms of what's been fascinating you, a sort of um, a bridge to ideas you're thinking about currently? You know, I've been doing a lot of reading um, about San Francisco's history. Uh, the Really, the main book that I, that did so that got me thinking about so many things and has had my mind in so many different directions is uh, Imperial San Francisco by uh, Gray Burchin. A uh, really fascinating uh, account of all sorts of things I never even thought about, and a, a pretty damning um, analysis of San Francisco, the Bay Area uh, cities. Um, I think, in a way that also it's, it, it's a critique of urban life and urban power in a way that doesn't read as primitivist and instead ask like are cities really things that we choose to live in and that are made for us or are they just like a place for elites to really play and and sometimes kill each other and but always raise the value of uh, investments in so that they can get a good return on them um, i think that's a really great book to think about when we're thinking about to, i've been thinking about ways in which it can it connects to abolishing or experimentation you know thinking about how artificial most of the stuff we live around and in is today and how that artifice is like no interest in helping me or you 